last time we were talking about uh, film things. Yeah, and uh, several I was, several times now. Yeah, and I was complaining about how my my shutter sounds like something that's dying, mm-hmm. and so I brought my camera with me, and I want to get your professional opinion on this sound. Okay. They're gonna think that was a, a fake sound effect. That does sound pretty bad. It sounds bad, right? <laughs> it's like, oh! The, fir- the first one kind of sounded all right, and the second one did not sound good. It's a brand new battery. It's just like it's, it's trying too hard. I mean, it may just be that the mechanism's old or, you know, has gunk in it or something. Who knows? Both are valid possibilities. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> the pictures come out fine, though, right? Yeah. you. So I sent you, so I sent you the pictures that I got from, from, that I, from developing... From, 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 mm-hmm. from, from. You remember. Yeah. Yep. You might say that this is a story that's been developing over multiple episodes. <laughs> it sure has. Because I, I shot that whole roll of Ektar, and I finally got the photos back. And I feel like you would agree they were not bad. Yeah. that That's a great way to describe it. Not bad. This is, this is like, I mean, is this pre-show? Whatever. I feel like I get, I get these things developed, and I don't want to pay all the money to get them developed in like maximum K's. <laughs> maximum K? Is that is that a resolution now? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, max K. And so I'm, I'm getting these these scans in like 2K. And I'm used to looking at pictures that are you know like mm-hmm. 6,000 pixels across. And I feel like I can't like zoom in and look at the details, which is just a habit of like, oh, that's a cool picture. Let me just, you know go to 100% zoom and kind of look at it and see, you know, what's the detail in the grain and stuff look like. And... It looks horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Have you considered just paying more for maximum Ks? Well, no, I'm thinking that I need to figure out a way to try scanning it myself at higher resolution. Like I'm going to set up a light and try to like mount my camera perfectly perpendicular over the film. And I have that one-to-one macro lens. And so I'm going to try to take some macro shots of my negatives and see if the detail holds up and whether or not it's worth getting higher quality scans. Interesting. I'm curious to see how that works out for you, because that sounds kind of uh, challenging. Uh, yeah, well, normally you'd have, like, gear for that. You'd yeah. have, like, the, the the thing that holds your camera just so, and you can, like, turn the knob and raise it up and down, mm-hmm. and then you have, like, the little slide deal where you put your film in, and it gets it into the exact same spot every time, and, and then you, like, would release, expose it with your, you know, remote shutter release. I wonder if uh, that apparatus is 3D printable. It seems like it would be not stable enough. Mm, okay. Maybe. Or very complex. It'd, yeah. be, it'd be so much. Not, maybe like the one that you run the film through, you could you could 3D print. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, just just the little device that holds the camera in place. Seems like maybe something could be, that could be 3D printed. Mm. Maybe not. I think it's 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 more of like a like a structural monobot thing, like it's like a rail where nah. your camera would mount its its uh, plate to on the bottom. Like you would screw it in and then you could kind of move it up okay. and down. Yeah, that sounds complicated. It does sound complicated. You're just going to have to buy one, I guess. <sighs> They're so expensive. I just, I want to, I need to test it out. I just going to have to like rig this whole thing up and get like a level and just, and just see, you know, is the resolution really there or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could do all that. Or, you know, one time when you take pictures, you could just pay the extra money for those scans. That's the other option. <laughs> Got to decide what your time's worth. I don't know. We're, we are going on a trip this weekend, and I've been deciding, trying to decide, should I bring the film camera? I think you should only bring the film camera. Oh, no, no. That's terrible. But should I should I shoot in Cinestill 800T? Which boy is that a <laughs> foreshadowing? Are you are you legally allowed to? I mean, <laughs> or should I shoot in Porta four hundred? I don't even know. I wouldn't know how to begin to make that decision. I feel like Porta four hundred is the answer because it's it's going to be more daylight balanced. Oh, uh, Okay, but is the four hundred and eight hundred of those ISO values? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, then probably so. Some people like to push eight hundred T. Like to push it up to thirty two hundred. <sighs> Think of all that delicious green. Yeah, wonderful. Be a little bright. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Your your uh, dying shutter might not be able to handle that. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's what it sounds like whenever it shoots film. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. 
I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. Have you ever been in a situation where you were talking to somebody and you were like, oh boy, I know way more technical details about this thing than they do. And you were like kind of out nerding them in a way. I feel like that's happened once or twice at the camera store. Yeah. Well, like for instance, say you're talking to somebody about photography and they're just like, yeah, I take pictures and they look good. And you're like megapixel and they don't know what that means. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe not that word specifically, because most people know what that one means. Well, yeah. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. Uh, Well, sometimes I find myself to be in that situation, but in the reverse, where I'm like, I know what log is. I'm so smart. I have a camera gear podcast. And then I start reading forums on the internet about camera stuff, and I'm like, oh, boy, (laughs) I don't know what any of this means. What are these forums? Where are you finding all this deeply technical information? uh, I was on like EOS HD or something, like one of their forums, I think it was. Anyways, they were talking about, they're talking about like Fuji stuff. And I ended up here because I found this video by some like Colorize or something, and it had a thousand views. And it was talking about like Fuji stuff. And he casually mentioned, oh, yeah, like it has this chroma smoothing problem like all those Fuji cameras. I have a video on it. And so I was like, go on. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) Chroma smoothing, you say? I absolutely know what that is. Uh And so I watched his video on chroma smoothing. And he's like, I'm the only one talking about this problem. And it's true. because (laughs) (laughs) Can confirm. Because I found like two different forum discussions about it, and like it's just this guy, <laughs> <laughs> and he is like, we all know that I'm right, and so let me talk about how right I am. <laughs> it's a great start. What was he talking about? He was t- so. Oh boy, Daniel, I who are you familiar with? What RGB is, right? I think I've heard of that. Yep. <laughs> Red, green, blue. You yeah. Know, color yeah, color sound, mixing. Those sound familiar. So that's one way that you can store color information. Okay. The other way you can store color information is with YCBCR. Are you familiar with that? You know, I feel like I've heard those letters, but I have no idea what that means. Yes. Yeah, I've seen them before as well. And what that is, is why is your Luma? And so it's all of the brightness information for your image. And then... CB and CR are the chroma color information. And so your CB is your blue minus Luma, so B minus Y. And your CR is red minus Luma, so R minus Y. Interesting. And between those three things, you can derive RGB or all of your color resolution. You can decode it into your image. But why would you use that instead of RGB? I think that it's a matter of color resolution and color depth and how the information is communicated because of like how you're managing detail in those channels. And so the controversy that this gentleman has presented to the internet is that if you, cause he was comparing like a 5d Mark four using magic lantern raw output and kind of comparing it to an XT three And what he found was that if you, like he was looking at foliage, and this is where this is mostly a problem, is where you have not high contrast, far away, lots of detail. He was noticing that he was losing colors. He was like, look at these leaves that are like basically jumbled garbage because I have to zoom into 800% to see them. Now look at these leaves on the Fuji. The red disappears. So there's red here, but there's not red here. Interesting. Okay. Why is this happening? This is basically like an only, only a foliage problem. Mm-hmm. And so what he determined was that whenever the Fuji cameras like output their information, they're outputting everything to YBCR, YCBCR, not RGB, and then your your whatever your video processing DaVinci Resolve or whatever is going to decode that out into RGB. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> anyway, so. What he's what he was saying is that the CB or the CR channel, they Fuji is like smoothing out the CR channel to get rid of like noise kind of thing, and that it's probably due to X trans. That's what I was wondering is if this was an X trans thing because it kind of reminded me of those. Uh 
Would it be D? I guess it'd be demosaicing, like the right. issues that the older X trans sensors had. Yeah, so demosaicing is kind of a totally different thing. That's a different level of the stack. Mm-hmm. This is after, like, after that process and like how it's storing the information. And what he was saying is like the way that, or his opinion was, oh, you know, Fuji's advertising like Moray and you know all this improvement for X trans, and in order to like kind of keep the noise under control and get these cleaner images or whatever, they're smoothing out these chroma channels and he like showed the difference he's like look at just the chroma channels you can see the detail here and it looks like a smushy mushy mess over on this one mm, interesting and like you use a scope or something to do that yeah like he just like split the channels out okay and his point was like you still like the image looks good at the end because you're, you're combining all these channels together and so like your luma is maintaining all your resolution but you basically don't have any color resolution because the cbcr channels are like smushed out with noise reduction and kind of it all mushes together. Huh. And as a result, like you, you're kind of this drop in like color depth, color resolution out of the Fuji cameras. And that's why sometimes for like far off people, you end up with waxy skin tones or like some of your colors bleed together and don't actually match up. And he's like, this is a real problem and blah, blah, blah. And like settings for the noise reduction and like XH2S is kind of improved, but not really. And Boy, I was, I read like 15 pages of forums on this. All from that one guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they're the only ones talking about it, it seems. And I was like, huh, I wonder how how true this is or if like the way that Fuji is doing their like color processing and stuff and like handling those chroma channels is like just different than what you would see out of a bear sensor and it's less of a problem than people are making it up to be. I don't know. It's like, I look at the, the colors and, you know, everything that I get on my camera and I'm really happy with the images that I get. And so I, I don't know. I was, this is like, this is the part where I'm like, this is deeper than what I know about. And like, I don't know too much about the mathematical, et cetera, of like, how am I determining resolution and color depth and like how chroma channels are, are you know, combined into and processed and, oh boy. Yeah. That's all super deep. I mean, I'm kind of inclined to say that if you like, if you take pictures and you like the way they look, then maybe you should focus more on that than on, you know, looking at all this weird stuff. But at the same time, it sounded like it was based on him taking a picture and saying, look at this foliage and look how it doesn't look right on Mm -hmm. the Fuji. So, I mean, maybe there are some situations where it does come into play and like maybe in some cases it is noticeable, but I agree with you. I've never, I've never noticed anything with my camera, so maybe I'm just not picky, but I haven't or seen that. Maybe you're just like not shooting the things where that's a problem, or you're Could just be. not diving into like 1,600%. Uh, that's definitely true. So. Or maybe you just don't care about, care about the color red. Yeah, maybe maybe not. Maybe I can't see it. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe Who knows? That, maybe that is the problem. <laughs> Have you ever thought about shooting in black and white, Daniel? <laughs> No, no, I haven't. You know, the the, the Nikon ZF has a black and uh, white switch I, mode I dial did, on it. I did know that. And it looks retro like a Fuji. I mean, it probably doesn't have chroma smoothing. <laughs> you should switch to Nikon. <laughs> well, I'm glad we've got that guy out there uh, researching all that stuff. Yep, okay. just doing the Lord's work. Uh-huh, really uh-huh. talking about that chroma smoothing. Yep. It's a, it's a controversy, Daniel. Apparently. I'm telling you, no one's talking about it. Fuji's probably suppressing everybody. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, the, this is the only guy who can get past their, yeah. their sensors. Well, if there's never another episode of this podcast after this one, you will know that Fuji suppressed us. <laughs> oh, boy. I just, I never know how to think about a lot of that stuff. Like, I love my camera. I love the way it looks. And I feel like even though it's been 10 years, X-Trans is still controversial. And that there's a lot of a lot of discussion on the matter, and people like to point to this. I don't know if it was like DP Review or Petapixel, but somebody wrote a a post about this, like in 2015, 2017, where they went like on and on about the problems with X trans and its de mosaicing, and how like, look at this person that's you know pretty far away in this picture. Their teeth and their lips are the same color, and it's because you can't you know get the resolution and all this sort of thing mm-hmm. to you know to figure out what the difference is because of the, the filter yeah, array which, which was maybe true in 2015 yeah which maybe was true in 2015 i feel like their their programming and like dmos aching has gotten better but it feels like it's just an uphill battle for them that people are always looking for a reason to complain yeah. about x trans yeah 
it's it seems like reputations like that are really hard to uh change after the fact you know like they got that impression they got that reputation and then now they can't get over it yeah i guess like what i can't decide is the whole like x trans filter ray and like the way that fuji does their sensor and how it's that much different than traditionally everybody else like it gives you different things like i think the noise is kind of more pleasing and that sort of stuff but it feels like it's a legitimate reason to not buy a Fuji over something else Mm -hmm. if you know that you don't want to have to deal with like the way that Lightroom handles the RAWs and if you don't have to, if you're concerned about the chroma smoothing or uh, like waxy skin tones or that sort of thing. And I feel like if you don't really care enough to know what X-Trans is, you can't make that decision. Yeah. I mean, it it may just be that it's not really worth it. I know they, I know the reasons why you know, why they use X-Trans. We've talked about it in one of the first episodes of this podcast. Like yeah. there are reasons, but like, you know, is it worth it for them to do, to do that? Cause they're definitely losing some amount of customer base by having it. Do you think they're keeping customer base by having it? Uh, that's a good question. I honestly, probably not. I mean, the biggest thing I could think of would be the, like the filmic noise. Cause I do think people like that about Fuji's, but I think people are more in it for stuff like film simulations and the X100V and I don't know. I and the and the form factor, the fact yeah. that they're smaller. Yeah, I think that I think that those are big selling factors. Now that I'm a big film guy and I shoot film all the time. Yeah. Now that you're talking from a place of expertise. Exactly. I can't say that the noise is weirdly similar. Like mm-hmm. I was surprised. Yeah. I thought it was just a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> But so maybe there is something to it. It's not like Fuji hasn't released APS-C bare cameras. The A A line that they had, like the A7, blah blah blah, not like the Sony A7, but the Fuji A7 100 or I can't remember. Anyways, they've made bare sensor cameras. I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew the, the GFX stuff was. I didn't realize they made uh, APS-C bare. Yeah, yeah. So I just I don't know. I can't. I don't know if it matters. I guess for me, for most people, it doesn't. And yeah. it's like, am I getting the images that I like out of the camera that I like? And maybe that's good enough. And that's kind of what I was saying is, you know, like it's cool to research stuff like this and know what the limitations of your camera are. But personally, I'm just going to judge it based on the output and what I can see. And I'm happy with what I see. I just, I'm worried that, that I've been duped this whole time. Mm. I'm out here spreading the Fuji gospel. Yeah. And maybe I've been lied to. Maybe. Have have I been lied to, Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> Is it time to switch to Panasonic? <laughs> what? They have new cameras, right? Yeah, yeah. Supposedly, there's, there's rumors of it. What What'd you hear? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are there are actually Panasonic rumors. I heard um, I heard that they've actually registered two new models in China. It was one, and then there was another one. So now there's two, and it kind of made it sound like one was a higher end model and the other was maybe a lower end model and the way people are determining that is by what wi-fi bands those cameras are said to support that that's like super deep yeah (laughs) (laughs) because apparently they're higher end stuff so something like a gh7 or an s1h you know mark ii or whatever a camera like that would generally be dual band wi-fi so like 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz whereas there are some of their lower end stuff is typically only 2.4 gigahertz. And so the thing I saw said the lower end one could be, you know, some lower end Panasonic camera, maybe like a micro four thirds or something, or, or like a cheaper S5, something like that. Um, or it could be one of those, they said it could be like one of those BG series uh, video camera things. Sure. So we don't know there, but there, there's, there's something coming. So we'll I mean, see. we're, we're all, actively waiting for the next stuff in the S series, like mm-hmm. S1, S1R, S1H. I mean, yep, it's got to be common. You would think. I, I've heard people say that they really think the S1H Mark II is going to be next year. Sure. And like they maybe think, they release the S1R and the S1 first and yeah. then S1H after? Well, that's yeah, that's kind of some of what I saw. Some people said it could be a GH7, which I hope it's not a GH7 because that would be really disappointing. They, they need to get off this Micro Four Thirds train. I mean, they just came out with a G9, man. They yeah. Gotta, they got to yeah. get that uh, autofocus into the GH series. I guess. Maybe The maybe GH6 what is. is what, two years old? That would be really quick for a GH7. Yeah, but the GH6 is already showing up on sale, like on aggressive sales. So, oh, really? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that camera sold very well. Yeah, that's. It's a shame because like 
the up up through the GH5, those Panasonic video cameras were were something else. Yeah, I mean it was like legendary yeah. up through the GH5. It was just too cool that Panasonic, you know, they saw all the hacks that people were doing. They're like, we'll just build that in. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if if Canon had done that with the Magic Lantern stuff? Oh no, man. And they were like, Oh yeah, you want all these features and to be able to shoot raw? Sure. That would yeah, that would have changed things a lot. But I don't know. I mean from what I've heard, it seems like they're focusing more on the lower end stuff. So like the S5 has been really popular, I think. And they probably just want to focus more on the cameras that are selling more. You know, there's probably a sure. bigger market for a $2,000 camera than a $3,500 camera. But um, I really want to see that S1H Mark II. And I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen it because they, it's it's conspicuous that they updated their like lower end model and not the higher end model when that seems like the technology should be right there. Just, I feel like the that S1H Mark II is going to be so competitive with like the A7S three FX3 series, and it's going to be like that much better, especially if they can push out a stack sensor in that camera. It's going to be something else. It's going to be like the, that next step yeah. in like mirrorless video body. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm real excited for it. And it's, it's a, sh- I thought it was going to be this year. Like, yeah. honestly, coming into like January 2023, I was like, this is the year for the next Lumix camera and it's going to be great. Well, and then once the S5 was announced in like the March time frame or so, it was like, well, okay, like now we've seen where they're going. Like, yeah. you know, surely the S1H is going to mm-hmm. nope. It's right there. I'm I'm waiting for I'm waiting for basically a Z8 but a Panasonic camera. Like mm-hmm. that that feels like exactly what they're going to do or a Z9 even like take that 42 megapixel stack sensor that can shoot 8K and like let's see what Panasonic can do with it. And it just feels like it's not going to happen this year. Yeah. Disappointing. Yeah, sure is. There was another patent that Panasonic came out with. I think this was actually earlier. This was like August time frame, where they patented a built-in electronic ND, which looks like something very similar to what was in the Burano. Oh, that'd be cool. I guess. It's like, it's like here's a piece of glass that can drop down in front, mm-hmm. and then like the patent is for that mechanism. Okay. And then because it's electronic, I assume it's very similar to like, you know, you run a current through it, and like it's, you know, 0.3 to like 2.1 or something like that. It's been surprising that we haven't seen that. I mean, it's like so many people want to see ND filters built into mirrorless cameras. Yep. And especially now that everybody's doing mirrorless video, it's like this is this is an obvious thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I know there's like some size considerations and stuff. And especially with IBIS, there were some concerns. But it seems like with the Burano, Sony has shown that those things really shouldn't be problems. Like right. you can do variable like internal ND with IBIS and... If they can fit it on the E mount, then I mean maybe it makes your camera body bulkier, but they, like, can, they have an extra two millimeters on on L mount. Mm-hmm. I mean it's twenty versus yeah. eighteen. Like yeah. they, sure. So maybe maybe this is like Sony's just developed that technology and not everybody has that yet, but I'd really like to see that. Yeah, I mean obviously there's the size and weight conversation as far as a mirrorless camera with built in Indies and IBIS. It's just gonna be, it gonna be so bigger. bulky and so heavy. But I feel like the people that want it or the people that need it in that form factor, maybe that's not so much of a problem. Mm. I mean, I, if my X-H2S had been a little bit bigger but had built-in ND, I would have accepted that for sure. I would have second-guessed it. I don't know if I would have taken that trade-off for, for the X-H2S. Yeah. Well, you maybe use for the 2S. For, but... You use yours for travel a lot more than I do. Yeah, so. that's true. But I don't know. I, that's something I would love to have on my next camera. It's just, I mean, right now, the only... The only affordable mirrorless cameras I can think of that have it are the uh, Blackmagic 6K Pro. That one has it. Yeah, I mean, that's... It's a $2,500 camera. That's basically it. I'm having trouble thinking of really anything else that's of that class of camera that has built-in ND. Yeah, like the C70 does, but that's, you know, a $5,000 cinema camera. Right, exactly. So, I don't know. I'd like like to see more of that. Well, next year... Camera of the Next Year 2024. Year. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we'll see. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to start working up my list for this year. Uh, yeah, running out of time. It's getting, it's getting close. Here. and yeah. I, I mean, We have to be done with camera releases, right? Like, there's nothing else coming out between now and the holidays. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, I don't know. Apple has their uh, their Halloween event coming, so. Well, yeah, and then, and Apple, Apple's going to release a uh, <laughs> interchangeable lens camera. <laughs> They're going to release an L-mount cinema camera. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> that would be so out of left field. That would break this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. It would have no buttons. <laughs> it would just be like a touchscreen. Oh. <laughs> it would be horrible. It's all controlled by Siri. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, just voice control. <laughs> <laughs> Siri, set, set it to 4K60. 
Oh man, that'd be so bad. <laughs> Let's not. Oh no! Now my now my I couldn't find 4K 16 in your Apple Music library. You can ask another player radio station or ask me for music on a different app. <laughs> okay. Anyways, oh no no ah, ah, ah. I clicked on it and almost opened oh, up a video. It was very close. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about something else. All right. Sounds All right. good. So we were talking about Panasonic. Yep. And that's L mount. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about L mount lenses and Sigma. Very professional segue there. What do you got? Thank you. I've been, I'm working it, Daniel. I, I can tell. Just all over the segue today. You are a today. professional podcaster now. Watch out. I did skip over a topic in order to make one of those segues work. And since yeah. we've broken the chain, I feel like I can scoot back a little bit. We did talk about me getting my pictures back, but we didn't talk about the pictures, Daniel. <laughs> and really, there was just like one, like one little bit of, it's not feedback, but like, I was looking at all those dog portraits that did I you, took. Hold on. Did you just ruin... I, I complimented your segue. Oh, yeah. No, we, we're, just, we're totally off the train. totally we're to- ruined that. <laughs> we're totally off the train. Oh, man. Okay. All right. All right. I was looking at some photos that I took, uh-huh. and I was shooting at f at 1.2 on my 56 millimeter lens, and Daniel, I saw some chromatic aberration. Now, you're talking about... You said 56 millimeter 1.2. That's that's a Fuji lens. Yeah, that's my Fuji lens. Okay. That's like the Fuji portrait so you, lens. So you're you're not talking about your film camera. You're talking no. about on the mm-hmm. XS. I was okay. just I've been I've been holding this inside and I just can't I can't not talk about it. And I don't remember if I sent you the picture, but it's like here's a white shelf in the background out mm-hmm. of focus and like the right side of the white shelf is just a green line all the way down where like it separates from the white shelf mm-hmm. to the background. Oh man, I was like, that is, that is the worst chromatic aberration I've ever seen. You know what they call that though? Hmm. They call it character. Okay, we're moving on. So L L mount, right? <laughs> uh, Sigma Sigma's man making APS-C L L mount lenses, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, well, we talked about that recently. We talked about how there's no. APS-C L-mount cameras. Yeah, a little conspicuous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And Petapixel picked up on this, and they talked about how like. Well, is Sigma going to come out with an APS-C camera? And I thought maybe it'd be interesting to talk about what would be cool to see out of a Sigma camera. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure the last Sigma camera that was released was the FP, and then they had, I think, the FPR? FPL. FPL. So, like, that's the there was a high resolution and the regular, so it was, like, 26 megapixel and then, Mm -hmm. like, 60 megapixel or something. Those were interesting cameras. They were very interesting cameras. So, they were were just bare-style sensors. And they were extremely small. It was, they were like the size of a of an what's the what's the name of the ZV ZV one. Mm-hmm. They were smaller than that camera, yeah. I think. They're very very small, and it was very boxy. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah, a, it was a um, a very stripped down design. It was like a traditional Game Boy, but smaller. <laughs> and it was a full frame sensor. Like yep. you crammed a whole freaking full frame sensor into this thing, and it's L mount, and it's like the most stripped down version of what a camera could be. Mm-hmm. And I remember whenever they came out with it, they were like, we did this because we wanted to make it as modular as possible. And you can like rig this thing all the way out to a cinema line or you can make it into like just a little photo camera. And we want to give you like all of these capabilities and everything in a body that's going to overheat in 10 minutes <laughs> and maybe no one's going to buy it. And it's going to be really expensive. Yep. But it was interesting because it was almost like they were trying to approach it from an angle that no one else was yeah. at the time. Like this thing doesn't have a grip. It's like it's like a bar of soap, and and I I like that. Like I like having stuff that's unique. You know, we don't like. Are they really gonna make a better, you know, Sony A sixty seven hundred? I mean, probably not. So I like that they're doing something different. Yeah, for sure. So it's like those are the that's the camera that they came out with four years ago, and it was full frame, and like it's still basically holds up. I still see like the uh, Caleb over at DSLR, DSLR Video Store has a really cool sh- sh- video on like this. It's tiny cinema rig where you use an FP mm-hmm. and like it still holds up well enough for those that video use and I don't know so I kind of want to talk about what would you want out of a new Sigma camera because it feels like we're four years on are they going to come out with something new and like maybe it's APS-C maybe it's not I don't really care about that part of the conversation I kind of want to get an idea of like maybe what you would think would be interesting out of like a Sigma form factor like what could they do differently yeah I mean whether it's APS-C or not is is pretty central to this rumor because the the whole rumor is that they've released an APS-C L-series lens or L-mount lens. And it's like, well, there aren't any cameras that can use that. So what's the deal? So 
I mean, I do think if they release something, it would be APS-C, and, and I'm fine with that. But yeah, I I don't know what I don't know what it would be. I guess if I had to say what I would want, I kind of think the FP was an interesting idea. I'm having trouble remembering what the downsides to that camera were because I remember it had some stuff where it was like, you know, this looks like a good camera, but it's just missing some things that make it not really where it needs to be. Like it wasn't a serious consideration for me. I think it was, there was like a battery life concern. I don't think it had dual memory slots. I think overheating was partially a concern just mm-hmm. because how, how small it was. And I think like it had a bunch of weird limitations with like the record modes and yeah. like what kind of pictures that it took and, and that sort of thing. I guess, you know, seeing the existing FP and knowing that they've kind of gone down that road before, I could see them doing that again, but just doing a better job of it. And I'm also kind of reminded of one of our recent episodes. We talked about that Sony ILX camera. It's like a, you know, made for drones or industrial things. And it's kind of a similar idea where it's like this really stripped down uh, camera that still had really good specs and, you know, shoot, shoot high frame rate video and stuff. And I mean, I would love to have a little APS-C camera that was small enough to easily mount on a gimbal or something I could put on a drone or whatever. I mean, that, that'd be great. And so if they can do that and still get, you know, really solid internal recording. And if it's not going to overheat, I mean, I'd be all for it. I think it'd be cool. Something that's something that's not too expensive, has decent specs that you can kind of rig out for mm-hmm. whatever you're looking yeah. for. It would at least be something different than what we have. I mean, because, you know, we, we talked on this podcast before about box cameras and I'm really into that idea. Um, and I've struggled with my XH2S rigged to just deal with some of the downsides of that form factor. And so, if they can come out with something that's, you know, really, really small, like even smaller than a lot of these box cameras, but is kind of made for that sort of use case and maybe has some mounting points on it and stuff like that, um, you know, then I can add what I need to on it. And if I need to put like a monitor on or whatever, then I can do that. But I would love to have something that's like small and that I can put on a, a gimbal or something. Yeah, I do like I do like the flexibility of FP, and it seems like that would be a good way for them to move in to kind of give you the option to make it what you want, like add a camera grip and use it as a small travel camera or rig it out for a video or that sort of thing. I am looking at what the specifications were for that camera when it came out, the and FP. it seems like yeah. yeah, and it seems like it was 4K up to 24 up to 30 frames per second, and so like. Maybe that was competitive back then. It was, I mean, 2019, sure. It The, the formats were H.264 and Cinema DNG. I don't know anything about Cinema DNG. I don't either. I think it's kind of like, it's not raw, but it's, it's sort. isn't it sort of like pro-resi? E, yes, I think that is the case that it's like DNG is the a raw file type, but Cinema DNG is not raw because if you recorded internal raw, Red would sue your pants off. Yes. And that's what's currently happening to Nikon, which I feel like we all have to cross our fingers that Nikon wins that lawsuit or else we're never going to get raw internal in cameras. Yep. How do you even get that patent? Like, how does that work? You just like go to the Congress people and you say, "Uh, do you know what internal camera raw is? And they go, what? I think you answered that question. I mean, they got that patent because the people that approve patents don't fully understand technology. It, just, it feels like that's what it has to be. And now they're all, now it's like no, like does, you don't even have to be using Red Raw. It's like we're using ProRes Raw. Well, you can't record that internally. Yeah, but you you know, you don't even own the the format or the codec. You didn't even make it up. They're like, well, you can't do it internally because <laughs> we have a patent on that. It's, it's stupid, Daniel. It's, it is. It's just so dumb. Yep. Anyways, so it's not raw. But it's like some version of, and you can do it up to 12-bit. So that's kind of cool. Anyway, it feels like, you know, decent for the time, maybe a little limiting. It's like 422, that sort of thing. So I feel like for me, I have a new Sigma camera. I would either want it to be really interesting as far as competitive with current video specs. Things like being able to read out fast enough to do full width 4K60 at full frame orbit APS-C. It seems like most Unless you're going with a stack sensor, most cameras still can't do it. Mm-hmm. I think like the EOS R8 is an R6 Mark II kind of stand out that they can do full width 4K60. And then you have to go out to like the X-H2S and that sort of thing. But like S5 Mark II can't do it. The A7 IV can't do it. It's like everything has to crop in for those kind of read rates. And I know like not a lot of people shoot at that. But high frame rate at that resolution, I feel like provides you a lot of advantages for being able to like crop in and slow it down at the same time and like... 
I feel like for me, that's kind of a base spec of like, you know, reaching up and, and hitting something that's going to last a little longer. And so I kind of would like to see something like that out of it or see them put a Foveon sensor in something. And remind me what that is. I, I've heard the term, but I can't remember what that is. It's, it's the hot new thing, Daniel. They've been, Sigma's been talking about Foveon for years. They actually have like two Foveon cameras that you can get and they look stupid. They're just the most, like imagine a cell phone with a giant grip on it. That's what they look like. It's, it's just the wildest thing. Okay. Okay. So, you know, we've talked about X-Trans, we've talked about Bear and how like you have the sensor and then in front of it you have a color filter array. Mm-hmm. The concept of a Foveon sensor is that instead of having like a, a green, red, and blue like next to each other, they stack them and then it uses the wavelength of light to filter out the light. So you have one pixel and the light comes in and it'll go through the, it'll go through like the blue and then the red and then the green or I forget the exact order. And the concept is like the longer wavelengths will be able to make it all the way through sure. and the shorter ones won't. Okay. And so we'll catch those colors and read them as that color depending upon where they stop in this filter array. And the concept is like, you know, the same reason why people want to shoot on film or they want to, you know, shoot in like really high resolutions of like what's the, uh, like how fine is the color? Like, you know, for, this is a weird comparison, like 422 versus 444 for video, where, you know, when I'm, we're looking at how colors bleed together or the separation of two colors that are right next to each other. And whenever you like zoom all the way in, is that actually a smooth line? And yeah. is there any true, like things that overlap where it misread the colors and interpreted oh, it wrong? Because any existing Bayer or X-Trans sensor is basically guessing what color is in a certain spot. Exactly. Right. If it's if blue light hits a red pixel, it's just guessing that it's blue based mm-hmm. upon what the other things around it are. And if you have a high enough resolution, like it kind of helps make that problem go away. But Foveon is another option for it in that like it doesn't matter what color light hits the sensor it can yeah, figure it's it like out. Like every from. every pixel can detect every color. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. would be the like. Why don't I? Why didn't we just say that, Daniel? You should have just said that. No, it was more fun to watch you uh, figure that out. I just flounder around for a while. <laughs> like, well, Daniel, let me explain. Blah 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 blah. Okay. If okay. I had to guess, I'd say that the upside of that sensor is obviously your colors are going to be correct, and I would bet that the downside is that it's harder to get the luma correct on each color, because if you're passing all those wavelengths through like a stacked array whichever one's on the bottom is going to like that light is going to be attenuated as it goes through. That's right. And yeah. so getting that right would probably be a little hard. So yeah, that that's difficult. The, I think that they're dealing with like noise and dynamic range and it's, it's just been a really hard thing and it seems like they haven't been able to totally crack it. Mm-hmm. Like they have functioning cameras with Foveon sensors in them, but they are noticeably worse than the equivalent bare a filter array type Do thing. Do you know if, I mean, who makes those sensors? Sigma. Sigma. (laughs) I think they're, oh, I mean, actually, I don't know. They may be some collaboration with with Sony, but I thought that Sigma themselves made those. Does Sigma make, it's designed by Sigma and manufactured by Dongbu Electronics. Which could be anybody. You never know with those, uh, a lot of, uh, it's, it's always confusing with Chinese companies, like who's actually who. But. Yeah, exactly. So we're like it's we you can consider it think of it like Apple designs sure. the, yeah. you know whatever. I think it'd be, it'd chip, be fair to chip. say that it's made by Sigma, I think. Yeah, I I would say so too. So I think you're going to release an APS-C camera. You know, they haven't even they haven't even been able to get a Foveon sensor up to full frame, right? They're just they've all been smaller sensors. This could be it, Daniel. Could you imagine the buzz and the excitement? That would set it apart. I mean, you know, I, I said earlier, like, they can't make a better Sony a6700, but that would be one thing that would set their camera apart from other stuff in the market. To me, it would be right up the middle for Sigma, where they talk about, like, we want, they'll they'll make certain lenses for certain, like, compromises, and they seem to be the one out there that's saying, we don't care how big this lens is, or how heavy it is, or how expensive it is, we're going to make the lens that is the best for this mount for this application and so like they have these art series lenses that are just incredibly sharp and you know very clean images and that sort of thing and i feel like you know having a sensor technology in a camera that's theirs they can say 
the resolution of the color on this sensor is better than anybody else because of the type of technology it is. Be really interesting. Yeah, it would. I'd like to see it. I hope that uh, hope those rumors are correct. Yeah. So I don't I don't think there's a Foveon rumor at all. Yeah. I'm just projecting, and I'm saying like this would be super super yeah. cool for for Sigma to come out with. I think they probably are going to release a camera. There were, there was enough weirdness around that new lens and like the way the marketing images didn't show it on a camera and they showed like a weird like generic gray box of a camera like that makes me think they are going to release something whether it's Foveon or not who knows but I I hope they are releasing something It'd be cool I would be pretty okay if it was in the same form factor as the FP mm-hmm. I obviously you know I don't want to have any overheating issues and that sort of thing. But that sensor, that camera was so unique in its like size and form factor yeah. and tininess. I think it's I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, same here. I think that people who like shoot photos for a living will never buy that camera. Sure, because it doesn't have a grip. Yeah, and it's like now I'm gonna have to attach a grip to a four thousand dollar camera that I just bought, and like it just doesn't appeal to those kind of people. But maybe for those of us who are into like weird cameras, yeah, maybe it'd be cool. I could see it. I guess we'll just have to wait and see though. All right. I mean, anything else you want on that Sigma? No, I think that's about it. You're like, I don't care. I don't care about Sigma cameras, Lucas. Uh, yeah, but I do care about uh, L mount cameras. Well, I think, I think I'm just that. saying, like, there, here's an L mount camera. Yeah. It's going to go great with your Panasonic. Like, you can just, even this could be like your smaller version. How many cameras do I have to buy now? I don't know, Daniel. You're just, you're, you're, you're the one getting into L mount no. and all that cool Panasonic L mount lifestyle. <laughs> I'm going to have to put, I'm going to have to put this new Sigma camera on my list of reasons why you're going to buy Panasonic. Mm, it's yep. weird. It's weird because it's not Panasonic. Yep. But I've, I actually, you know what, I'm, I'm just kind of grasping for straws here. <laughs> I do need more reasons to go on this list. So far, I only have five reasons yeah, for you, you to, work on that. to switch that's, to that's Panasonic. Not very many. Yeah. I'm going to need at least like six or seven reasons. Yeah. All right. Well, they're, they're going to come up. You just wait. Yeah, all right. All right. A few more Fuji things for you, Daniel. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Fuji Ghost. <laughs> I have a Fringer 2 Pro adapter that adapts EF to XF. Yes. Which was pretty viable whenever I bought it because EF was a thriving lens mount. Mm-hmm. And yep. now no one cares. Yeah. You can't even uh, you can't even trade in EF lenses now, right? Yeah. Some places won't even take them. It's crazy. It's like they don't make EF lenses anymore. It's just a, it's a dead mount, Daniel. Who... Who in their right mind would ever want to mount an EF lens to anything? Well, <laughs> there was this time recently when there was an eclipse, and <laughs> I think you might have really liked to have been able to mount an EF lens on your Fuji camera. Oh, jeez. I was so mad that I left that adapter at home. Oh, jeez. Oh, those pictures turned out terrible. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not going to rehash that horrible experience. Golly. Fringer has come out with a new adapter for EF to FX. So they had the two, and now they have the three? Mm-hmm, yep. Okay. Cool. So I have, I own the two. Mm-hmm. The three is $350. What was the, how, how much was the two? I feel like it was less than that. I feel like I paid maybe 250 or Man, something. Times, times be a changing. I could be totally misremembering yeah. that, and I may have spent more on yeah, it. I feel like it may have been in like a $300 range, but. That does seem right. It seems like this is just a straight up replacement for it. Like mm, they've stopped selling the two and like, yeah. here's the three. It doesn't seem like there's anything substantially better about it, but well, it is weather yeah. sealed. I think that's what's substantially better about it is, you know, having that weather sealing. So a lot of the, a lot of the EF lenses people have might be Canon L series lenses, which, you know, are weather sealed. Mm-hmm. And so if your camera's weather sealed, then, you know, it'd be nice that the adapter was too. Yeah, so they keep these things updated. It seems like they're pushing firmware for that adapter out every every like six months or less, mm-hmm. just trying to keep up with all of the EF lenses, and they're just adding more and more and more. And I feel like if you have a supported lens, in my experience, the Fringer one works pretty good like 90% of the time. I have had issues where like if it gets off on the focus, it'll just like freak out and like lock up and you'll have to like turn the camera off. Mm, that's not as good. far as like, if it's, if it's like way out on infinity and you're trying to focus on something really close and it just can't figure it out, it'll go into this, this hunt mode and you kind of have to help it along. But that was more of like a one-off and that was with lenses that had like really big elements, like the 85 1.8 from Tamron that I, I would adapt that. And so it's, 
I but I was relatively happy with it for three hundred fifty bucks. It's like, man, that's right on the edge of, like, how much EF glass do you really need to adapt, and like, how reliable do you need the autofocus to be? I would say that's still pushing it for like what you get out of the Fringer, yeah. but it's decent. If you didn't already have one, would you buy one? No, probably not. Yeah. I've I've considered I have considered going with a speed booster. Like I think Metabones just has more brand recognition uh, in definitely. the adapter space. That's definitely true. And I feel like I've never I've used Metabones on like a Sony camera where yeah, it but was that's Sony not a, to EF. It's not a speed booster, it's just a still like the autofocus worked fine yeah, and like yeah. I've seen those work well and I would be curious if the uh, the EF version is better than the mm, Fringer version. Yeah. Yeah, because you're the Fringer does not have it doesn't have any glass in it, it's, right? It's exactly. literally just a, it passes all the electronics through. Yes, but it's just a just a hole, just an adapter, and that works great. Like you you take pictures and it tells you like this was shot on an EF twenty four to one hundred five mm-hmm. at f four point six. Cool. Yeah, so yeah. that's all that's all great. I don't know if f four point six is a valid aperture setting mm-hmm. on that lens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean. It, Obviously, I get the appeal of adapters. I've owned adapters in the past. I've definitely kind of started to think I'd rather just, if I'm a switching systems, I'd rather just sell the lenses and buy native mount lenses. But I mean, I guess where it really comes into play is if you want to keep owning cameras from two different brands, then maybe that's helpful. Like Maybe you only have to buy one telephoto lens or something. I think that when you get into like the cinema world, adapting is just like par for the course. You kind of pick the lens that you want based upon the characteristic of the lens, and then you pick the camera that you want based upon the features of the camera, and then you just find a way to mate the two. But a lot of times in cinema stuff, you're not trying to do autofocus. Right. Like you don't, a lot of times in cinema, you don't care about electronics at all. And right. that's the problem I always had with that old Viltrox speed booster I had. And, and you kind of mentioned similar things with the Fringer where it's like, Sometimes something just like disconnects for a second and it locks the camera up. Mm-hmm. And that like that's kind of unacceptable in certain circumstances, and so like that's why I don't like adapters. But it's different if you don't care about the electronics. Yeah, that's true. It's it is different if you don't care about the electronics, and I know, it's like sometimes you still have to adapt. There are lenses out there that just don't exist for newer mounts. I mean, until. Canon came out with like their most recent ultra wide, like that. What was it? Like the ten to twenty. The ten to twenty. Yeah. yeah, like the EF eleven to eleven to eighteen or eleven to twenty four or something was the closest thing to a full frame ultra wide zoom that you could get mm-hmm. for our mount, and like you, you basically had to adapt it. Yeah, I know that's not like apples to apples because you know, Canon has a first party adapter that basically works well enough. Well, I don't know. It seems like. Sometimes you just can't get away from it, especially if you're wanting to try to use certain lenses. Like, I would love to have a reason to own, like, a a locking PL to XF speed booster. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I don't don't have a reason to own one of those. You have to work on that a little bit. (laughs) So anyway, I mean, if if, if you have EF lenses, I think this is a great option. It's it's fun to shoot full-frame lenses on APS-C, in my opinion. Because it gives you different different options, like you're you're taking advantage of the crop, so you get this extra length. But you're shooting like a twenty four to one hundred five. That's like a thirty five to one fifty or something. Is that yeah? Right about that. Which is that's about a right. that's a weird focal length. Like yeah, it's just kind of this interesting like longer standard zoom, or like a twenty four to seventy is just that much longer. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's fun to get these weird weird zooms or like alternate focal lengths that you can't really get out of out of shooting like just APS-C lenses. That makes sense. And yeah. then also like you're shooting the center of the lens. Yeah, you're getting the sharpest and, part of the lens. Yeah, so like you're getting the best part of the lens and I don't know, it's kind of, yeah. it kind of works out pretty good. I've I've had fun shooting on EF whenever I have shot on it, but I barely ever use that that adapter anymore. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, for people who want it, the new one is probably good. The old one was good. Yeah, I would say it's it's probably worth it if you don't need a speed booster and you're looking for a cheaper way to get an EF. Because like, sick, yeah. it's like six hundred dollars to go Metabones, mm-hmm. and so that's a lot. It's like if you're not adapting a ton of lenses, you could probably save the money and go with a Fringer, unless it's like mission critical, and then I would say don't don't adapt. Yeah, yeah, find a native lens yeah. that's the right focal length. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool, cool. What else is on the list here, Daniel? 
Well, uh, earlier we mentioned the Sinistil yeah. 800T. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and you teased that there was some other news with that. And so we need to talk about that. So what what's going on with Sinistil? Okay, I have a roll of Sinistil 800T in my refrigerator right now. <laughs> Can I have that for dinner? <laughs> And whenever I saw all the drama about this kind of graze across the internet, I was like, I'm a part of the drama. I own the 800T. You have been thrust into the middle of this disagreement. <laughs> You're forced to pick a side. Yeah, I didn't, I don't, I don't even know if we're actually allowed to, to even say, say 800T on this podcast. Oh man. Sinistil. Hashtag not sponsored. Not sponsored. Has this, had, they have a film stock as you know, where it's basically like movie film stock that they've done some like chemical, not chemical processing to, but chemical processing to like remove some of the layers to make it into a photo film stock. Okay. And their most popular one is 800 speed tungsten white balance. Or 800T. 800T. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a description of a film stock. Yes. But it's so popular that they were somehow able to convince the trademark office to award them a trademark for 800T. I don't know how to feel about that. It took them like three applications, but they got it. It's just like that patent conversation earlier. It's just nonsense. I don't get it. Like I get like, I think that they were having issues with people like sell, trying to sell something similar to what their 800T is, but kind of like misrepresenting it and people yeah. were like buying a cheaper version because this is like 16 bucks a roll. Mm-hmm. It's not cheap film. And so people were buying like a cheaper version and they felt like they were getting ripped off because they thought it was Sinistil and it wasn't. And so like maybe they're trying to get ahead of that. I mean, you, know, you can see their side. Like it, this is basically the opposite situation of how like when I say Kleenex, you think of a tissue, whether it's a Kleenex or not. Like right. this is the opposite of that. Where more, they, more of a Puffs guy. Yeah. <laughs> they, they came out with this film stock and they just used that ter- that 800 800T term that had a specific meaning, like a specific description. But, you know, over time, it sounds like that has basically become their name, like like it has functionally become their name brand for that, f- that film. Right. I'm sure that's what they're arguing. Yeah, that's exactly what they're arguing. And so they've sent out letters because if you own a trademark, it's your job to defend your trademark. Yeah, and if you don't defend it, then basically it doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Right. So as their civic duty for this stupid trademark, they sent out a bunch of letters and were like, hey guys, this is trademarked. You can't use it. Lol. And I forget who it was, but one of somebody was like, Sinistil is suing me. And Sinistil's like, we're not suing you. This is just a notice of a trademark. And they're like, no, you're totally suing me. <laughs> and it's like a he said, she said kind of thing. And there's like all this drama around it. And now like Sin is still under fire because they're suing, not suing somebody else. And somebody else is like being called a liar because like they don't understand what like trademark notification is. And it's just like this whole drama thing. Yeah. And then like all of the film people who you can imagine are a little loud on the internet about film stuff. Because Daniel, there's not a lot of film out there. Like we, us film people have to really grasp at straws for all of our poor to four hundreds. You film people, <laughs> Daniel. I've shot three rolls of film in this last year. <laughs> How many rolls of film have you shot this year? Not that many, and, and I'm not calling myself a film person. So, <laughs> anyway, this community that I'm a part of now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, your brothers. Hey, <laughs> <Be> my brethren. <laughs> Or up in arms because Sinistil over here is trying to corner the market. And it's like, there's not even a market to corner, man. We need as much innovation as we can get. And if that means somebody's got to sell T-800, let them sell T-800, which is actually a Terminator. Yes. That might yeah. also be a trademark. Yeah, no, James Cameron's going to get real mad. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's all the drama. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about that one. I mean, I, I kind of... I could see where they would be coming from with it, but I, I guess it really comes down to whether there are other companies legitimately selling film that they advertise as 800T. And when I say legitimately, I mean like not 
trying to be misleading and trying to make people think it's the same as the Sinistil stuff. I think it's maybe less common now, but I mean, you go back 30 years, it's like every everyone was going to have a tungsten balance 800 yeah. speed film. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like the stupidest thing. It's like that red raw thing that I was complaining about. Yeah, yeah. Why do we have stupid patents and stupid trademarks? <laughs> It doesn't make sense, Daniel. This is the Camera Gear podcast, not the Anarchy podcast. I just, I need, I need people who run those offices to listen to this podcast. Yeah. So that that they can understand all this technology. That way they can just kind of like get up to speed and like, it's a pun, one for one, but then for two, we'll talk about like film speed or something. And then whoever's filling out those patents stuff, they'll be listening to the podcast and they'll go, oh, that's what that means. Oh, this is dumb. Why would I approve this? And then problem solved. <laughs> it's just that easy. You just yeah. have to get the U.S. Patent Office to start listening to the Camera Gear podcast. I don't see what the problem is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seems totally achievable. So yeah, I just I feel I was I was I was surprised by all of this. Yeah, because I'm like, who even knows what a Cinestill is, honestly? Mm-hmm. And the answer is me. And I'm just like thrust in the middle of all this drama. <laughs> and I don't even know what to do. I mean, like, do I still, sh- do my like supporting Sinistil and their name brand? I mean, like I said, you got you you have been forced to pick a side by owning that film. It's, I mean, like, I've already bought it, but, and like, they're not going to get any sort of whatever reci- reciprocation for me, like shooting that roll of film. Yeah. But, but like in your heart, you're... You're putting your uh, you're putting your support behind them if you shoot that roll of film. I mean, like, do they own my pictures afterwards? I don't know how even how, they, how this they works. They probably trademarked all your pictures. Yeah, I probably like I have to do. I have to like send my pictures to them when yeah. I'm done. Uh huh. I think they have to approve them before you get them. Right. I can't even like post yeah. them on the internet. Exactly. Wow. They've got to protect that trademark. They legally like, have to protect yeah, that like, trademark by looking at your pictures. I can't believe that's how that works. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I don't shoot film. <laughs> Yeah, because you because you can't anymore. Yeah, this reminds me of that that thing that they announced at the Adobe whatever event. Which thing? I can't remember what it's called, but it was along the lines of like, if you make an AI image, you can like it's like this authentication tag. Oh yeah, uh-huh. do you remember what I'm talking about? I think do you I remember do. what it's called? No, I don't remember what it's called. But it's there's certain camera manufacturers that are like have already like Nikon has already said that they're on board to have that integral for their file types where if you take a picture it will say like this is like here's the source all the way through of this was generated on an icon camera by like this person and you can kind of include in your copyright information yeah like baked into the file Mm -hmm. itself which i thought was kind of cool yeah and that's basically like is that to prevent people from using those images as part like as as training data for ai and having that like ultimately be used in a generated image is that what that was for yeah i think that's the idea is like if you get a generated image knowing where one that it was an ai generated image out the gate that Mm -hmm. like you just know that's what it is and then two so they can then track back like what images were involved in the creation of that image so that they can reciprocate like credit and payment back mm-hmm. if someone like purchased it or something. Yeah. And there's so much weird stuff around that. That I mean, th- those are questions that are already coming up that are going to have to be addressed at some point because, you know, you've seen all these different companies take different sides on that issue. And I mean, obviously you can't, if somebody takes a picture, you can't just use that picture, you know, and put it in your company's brochure or something without, you know, without giving any payment. I mean, that's clearly a violation, but it gets really fuzzy with all this other stuff where it's like if the AI is looking at that picture and learning from it, but they're not directly using it, then is that, how does that work? And I mean, it's all, it's all a mess. Yeah, it, it is kind of a mess. And like with digital, it's hard to track all that stuff. And I mean, I think that one, I think this would be a lot simpler if we all just went back to shooting film and then had to send our film to the manufacturer so that they could finish trademarking <laughs> it. And then they just send it back to us. And then it would just be stamped. And we wouldn't have to worry about it. I mean, I'm going to go through that process very soon with my 800T film. And like, we just need something similar for digital. And it sounds like that's what Adobe's doing. I do like the idea of somehow having something embedded in files that gives you some traceability to it for sure i mean what i'm more worried about is you know like in the future it feels like we're not going to know whether an image was generated by a real camera or by ai and i mean the problem with all this stuff is it's probably going to be easily faked so you you could 
Like, why not just have the AI generate that authentication code or whatever? But if there, if there was some way to, like, definitively say whether something was human generated or AI generated, I mean, that would that would really solve a lot of concerns about this stuff. Have you heard of the blockchain? <laughs> I think we might have an episode of this podcast that was called something like Camera on the Blockchain. Yes, yeah, so there was an episode yeah, called we, Camera we on the Blockchain. Come full circle. I think the concept behind that episode title was that you would have a, um, like, you could only take so many pictures or yeah. something. Yeah, I think we were talking about Kodak, maybe. Yeah. And we were saying that, like, like photos were going to be microtransactions. So you uh-huh. had to, like, buy film. Yep, yep, exactly. And then here we are. It's been, like, a year later, and here we are. And we've had an episode in which you're talking about having bought actual film and we're talking about a legitimate reason why you might want your photos to be on the blockchain. So I don't even know what's happening anymore. (laughs) It's full circle, Daniel. (laughs) I think we've stepped into the twilight zone. (laughs) Oh, gosh. We're talking about like a new Sigma FP and we're like (laughs) interested in that. And and, and this is just, there's some strange stuff happening Oh, geez, it's it's too too much. Oh boy, we we have to be done. Are we done? Yeah, I think we're gonna have to cut it off. All right, we, that, we, yeah, <laughs> we need to we need to lead the twilight zone. I think that's right. enough. Let's just find our way out of here real quick. That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us, and if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com, and you can find us on Twitter at cameragearpod. We'll be back with more next week. <laughs>